Am I on now? Okay. Now we go from our bilingual worship leader to our monolingual pastor. So. Okay. You know, my friend from Germany said, how's your German? Not good, Dominic. Not good. So, uh, anyway, um, got a good message this morning, I think. We're continuing the series from Isaiah 42, and I have a spinning circle here on my iPad, so let's see what's happening here. I'd have to try again. Be right with you. So, good to see all your faces here this morning, and as we... Um, take this time together, uh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? So, um, the message this morning is that the glory belongs to God, and, uh, and it certainly does. The past few weeks, we've been working through this passage, Isaiah 42, mostly in verses 1 through 9. It's one of four servant songs uh, that are in the writings of the prophet Isaiah. And each of these servant songs points to Jesus. And in Isaiah 42, as we've studied it so far, we've seen that the Lord's servant is somewhat described here, not physically, but as to his authority, as to his mission, the things he would accomplish. God would put his spirit upon him. He would bring justice to a world that's in desperate need of justice. He would not be a flashy person. He wouldn't be someone seeking lots of attention. He would not be one to to take someone who is bruised and break them. And he would not put out a faintly burning wick. He would go about on his mission without becoming tired or discouraged by it. He was commissioned by God for this task the God who gives breath and spirit to people. The servant of the Lord would be called in righteousness, given as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. He would open blind eyes, not merely physically blind eyes, but spiritually blind eyes. And that is exactly what he has done for each of us who put our faith in him. Because how could we come to faith in him? unless he opened our blind eyes. So this morning, as we continue in Isaiah 42, we're going to focus on verses 8 and 9. We're going to see that God does not share his glory. He doesn't give praise away to idols. So we're going to read that, but first to get the context, we're going to go back to verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he had established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness." 
I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Last two verses are focus. I am the Lord. That is my name. Though my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So, the big point here is that God's glory is his alone. In Isaiah 6, we know many of us this passage, we've seen it before. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who was called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response to being in the presence of God was a holy fear, realizing compared to God, he was not holy. But Isaiah realized that. We know that the next verse talks about how the Lord cleansed him so that he could be used as the Lord's instrument to proclaim. In Psalm 72, 19, it says, Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Revelation 4, 11, They sing around the throne of God, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed. And we're created. God will not share his glory with another. Certainly not carved idols, right? Why would he? He's the author of life. He's the creator of all. He's self-existence. If you want to take a moment to think about something that should make God magnified in your understanding of him, think about this for a moment. God is self-existent. Meaning, he needs nothing to sustain him. He needed nothing to create him. He has always existed, and in his self-existence, he is also unchanging. R.C. Sproul writes about God's self-existence in a book that's called Holy, 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 Proclaiming the Perfections of God. And he speaks of God's self-existence by considering nothing. After all, many scientists have been saying for quite a while that the universe exploded into being, they say, the Big Bang. Nothing was there, and then something was there. And this doesn't make much logical sense to me, since nothing is the absence of anything, and we know that nothing can produce nothing by itself unless something acts upon it. And here's what Sproul says about nothing. Nothing is so obviously the absence of something that philosophers cannot even talk about what it is, nothing, only about what it is not. 
But in the most basic categories, nothing is the absence of being. As I've said until my congregation is tired of hearing it, if there ever were a time when nothing at all existed, what could possibly exist now? Nothing. But if something exists now that tells you indisputably that there never was a time where there was nothing, not 12 billion years ago, not 18 billion years ago, not 18 trillion years ago, Everything that we know of, including the universe itself, had a beginning, which means it's contingent, derived, dependent on something outside of itself to lend being to it, except for God. God was not created. There was never a time when he was not. He derived his being not from something before him or something outside of him, but from himself. He has the power of being in and of himself. I wish everyone had a chance to delve into the depths of the inquiries of the Western philosophy to explore the concept of being because there is nothing more profound to say about God than that which he says about himself when he reveals himself by the name, I am who I am. So why would God give glory to anyone else? Who can compare? And once we know who God is, how could we turn anywhere else? As Paul wrote to the Galatian church, chapter 4, verse 8, he said, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He's talking about idols and things that people worshipped. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So Paul is showing a little frustration in some of his students. You know the real God, he says. How can you turn to idols? God will not give his glory to others. Throughout the narratives of redemptive history that we find written in the Bible, God has shown that he will deal with those who try to take the glory that only belongs to him. Pharaoh is an example. Nebuchadnezzar is an example. And many others who thought that they were pretty awesome. He showed them he will not allow another to take his glory. And one very clear example of God dealing with one who would Uh, who is accepting the praise of the people and what God would do about that, we find with Herod Agrippa. Now, there's if you read Scripture, there's more than one Herod. This is Herod Agrippa. And we read about this in Acts 12. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. That's a speech. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. But we say to ourselves in our pride, well, I'm not like Pharaoh. I'm not Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not like Herod. Well, perhaps. Maybe our own idolatry is not as open and flamboyant as those examples. 
Certainly, we can name many famous people in our world today who desire people to worship them. Maybe our temptation is not on the same level, but are we prone to this pride of desiring worship as well? How many of us really want the recognition for something? I remember once, I grew up in North Dakota, some of you guys can't even relate to this story. I was shoveling the driveway, and I was working really hard. It was really deep and really heavy, and I was probably about 80 to 90% finished with that driveway, and out comes one of my siblings, who will remain unknown to protect the innocent, and helps me finish the very last part. And then when my dad comes home, that sibling says, Jason and I shovel the driveway. And I was mad, and I was mad because I wanted the glory. I wanted the recognition. In fact, I would have rather finished the driveway at that time by myself than have the help for the last 10% because I wanted the credit for it. And yet other times when I've been the one playing a minor part in something, I still want the credit. I'm not the handiest person, but if someone's doing a work project, like, you know, real work, I'm happy to be there to hand them their tools or carry out the garbage or whatever. But when the project is done, can I really say I don't at least a little bit want to share in that glory? Sure I do. And so perhaps we're not that different than Herod. And by the way, this Herod had big insecurity issues, and so did another Herod. And this is the Herod that's name comes up in the Christmas story. And that's in Matthew 2, uh, 16 through 18. Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. This Herod, and now we were talking about Herod Agrippa before, now we're talking about Herod the Great. He was a very unstable and insecure person. In fact, I just saw an article yesterday about Herod and the author, Ryan Rotz, who wrote the article, said this of Herod's insecurity. He said, while the Romans favored Herod, the Jews did not. After returning from Rome with an army, Herod usurped the throne from the Parthians, with whom many of the Jews had sided. Herod was not a pure Jew either. He was of a people group who were forcibly converted to Judaism. Despite his efforts to rebuild the temple, Herod was never fully accepted by the Jews. Because of this, Herod lived in perpetual fear of revolt. He built multiple palace fortresses where he could defend himself in case of attack. His paranoia knew no bounds, leading him to kill six of his own family members, including his favorite and beloved wife and three of his sons. Even the notorious bloodthirsty Rome was shocked by the brutality. Augustus scoffed, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son, riffing on the fact that Herod abstained from pork. One story perfectly encapsulates the paranoia and insecurity of this aging tyrant. Shortly before he died, Herod invited a number of prominent citizens to a special event. He told them that following his death, they would all be killed. 
He hoped that the people mourning in the streets over their loved ones would appear to be mourning for him. He was so convinced that no one loved him, he was willing to kill for it. Could we ever be so insecure? Without Christ, we will be. Like Herod, desperate to find love, living in fear, the one without Christ is empty, unfulfilled. Only in Christ can we be secure. Only in the Prince of Peace, the lasting peace that every human desperately desires. I feel for the many people who don't understand Christmas in this sense. Even a non-believer can find some enjoyment in the holiday season. Even the unrepentant may find some joy or temporary happiness because they're spending time with family or friends, hearing music, seeing decorations, exchanging presents. But the holiday will end, and the temporary high of feelings will soon be gone for those who don't understand it. And it will be winter in the northern hemisphere with less daylight and the depression in January and February hits the roof. And the words of the song, I don't want Christmas to end, express that sentiment pretty well. But outside of Christ, we'll always be unfulfilled. How many people have thought, if I could just take this vacation, if I could just get this gadget, if I could just get this raise or this job or this spouse or this house, then I'll finally be fulfilled. Ultimately, it all comes back to not having a proper understanding of who God is so that we can give him the glory that he deserves. And when we get focused on his majesty, power, and justice, when we try to grasp what it means that he's self-existent, then, and when we spend time contemplating all of those things, then God becomes bigger to us and we feel more secure. And this section of Isaiah, as it wraps, In verse 9, God gives further evidence to increase the faith of his people. He says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. What is he saying here? Basically, he's saying this. Things I have promised before have already taken place. Things I told you are going to happen are still going to happen. As further evidence of my faithfulness, and things I am still going to reveal to you, you also are go- that I'm still about to re- reveal to you are going to take place. You see, God is the God of the prophets. The evidence of who was a true prophet of God was that the things that they said first aligned with his word and that the things they predicted came to pass. The book of Jeremiah speaks to those prophets who said, Thus says the Lord, And today there are plenty of false prophets as well. In fact, there's a great example just in the past year or so. Many people said from pulpits, on television programs, with the authority of saying that God told me or has shown me or the Lord has shown me that the former president would be reelected. And yet he was not. If someone tells you the Lord has revealed something to them about something like that and that doesn't happen, Scripture's clear. They're a false prophet. And that's why I'd rather spend my time showing you what God says in his word because that's trustworthy. The Bible is inerrant and infallible, and I wish I could say I was, but I'm not. So my advice to you, as always, is don't take my word for it. Go to the source Go to the scripture, see if these things are true. 
So God has given evidence through prophecies that were already fulfilled, and he's given prophecies yet to be fulfilled, and he's declared them to us through Scripture so that we can learn from them and have our faith encouraged. And throughout the Christmas story, as we look at the different passages in Scripture that speak of it, we see many of these prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 7, 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 2 through 6, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Even the promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth, the promise to Mary and Joseph, God was proving himself. The former things have come to pass, new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And in Luke 2.14 says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God. Not glory to the prophets. Not glory to King David. Not glory to Mary or Joseph. Not glory to apostles. Glory to God. And it is in these truths that the very best of our Christmas songs ring out. I've been making mention of one each week, one of these Christmas songs. It's kind of a, I call it a hook or a connector for you. See, you know the song, most of you, and so sometimes it's helpful to connect Scripture to the song. And two Sundays ago, I told you about how the song, O Holy Night which was originally called Cantique de Noël, came about. How a priest in France asked a layperson to write a poem for the Christmas service, and that layperson was not even a believer, but wrote a poem in the back of a carriage on a bumpy ride, and he was so impressed with his own work that he hired another non-believer, a Jew, to put it to a melody. And it quickly became a loved Christmas song in France, but the Catholic Church found out that the man who wrote it was a non-believer and that he had joined the socialists and that the man who wrote the melody was also a non-believer. And so the church banned that song from being played or sung in any church. But the song had already been popularized, so even though people could not hear it in church, they still sang it. And last week I shared how that song came to the United States. How John Sullivan Dwight, a preacher, translated it into English because he was especially drawn to the song because he was an abolitionist who was fighting slavery 
and he loved the message of Jesus setting slaves free that the song spoke of. And I promised there was more to the story and the history of this song. Before I tell you the next part, though, I I noticed some of you after last week's service were eager to hear the next part of the story. And I fear that maybe someone's more concerned about hearing this than the rest of the sermon. Um, So may I just say that teachings from the Bible are more important to you, that you remember those rather than the trivia about a Christmas song. But with that being said, there's nothing wrong with appreciating history. And the next part of the story about this song tells of how, at least for a moment, it truly did bring peace in the midst of a conflict. I'll quote from an article I read. O Holy Night seems to have a long history of uniting those in war. During the Franco-Prussian War, legend says that during a lull in the fighting, a French soldier stood up from his muddy trench with no weapon in hand, and began singing Cantique de Noel, O Holy Night. Upon hearing the beautiful rendering, the German soldiers were so moved, they began singing as well. Both sides lifted their voice in song, alternating between French carols and the hymns of Martin Luther, which the Germans knew. A Christmas truce of sorts had been declared. And that's what Jesus came to do, redeem a lost world and bind our broken, shattered hearts into wholeness once again. He scatters the darkness. Hate cannot stand in the presence of love. Darkness cannot last in the piercing force of light. Where sin severed a filthy humanity from their creator, Jesus came to connect and bind them once more. And there's one more interesting bit of trivia about this song that I want to share that I'm afraid we're running out of time, and we'll have to learn that next week. But today the Advent candles were again lit, and the pink candle, the joy candle, was lit this morning. So as I close the message, let us pray together and ask the Lord to renew in our hearts a sense of joy, because he's, His majesty and His glory is forever. He doesn't share His glory with anyone else. So we might as well glorify him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this season that we have as a reminder of your love for us, your kindness towards us, that very kindness that draws us to yourself and brings us to repentance. Lord, you are a good God. As we go through this season, Lord, I pray that we would be seriously reflecting on you that we would once again look to you as Savior, our Lord, sanctifier, healer, coming King. Lord, Jesus is all of that and more to us. Lord, may it be more real every day for us. As individuals, Lord, may you speak into our hearts in our private times. And as a church, Lord, may we serve you well this season and in the coming year. And may it be done, all of it, for your glory. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.